Welcome to PWGC's Environmental Echo. I'm your host, Paul Boyce, CEO and President of PWGC. Today's episode is going to be on environmental due diligence, a very interesting topic. Uh, and today we have two guests also from PWGC. I have a environmental uh, senior project manager. We have Tom Melia. Melia? Melia. Melia. I got that right. I should know this. Tom's been with us for 17 years and, uh, you know, does a great job heading up a lot of our due diligence efforts. And we also have a, a project manager, Michael Gall, who's out of our city office. Uh, he's been with us for seven years now, which surprised me. I thought it was actually a little longer than that, but time is flying. Um, and today we're going to be discussing, as I mentioned, environmental due diligence. For those that don't know, I'm going to let these two expert gentlemen here explain exactly what that means in terms of, uh, you know, what it is, how we, how we, what, what we do with it, you know, why it's important and all that fun stuff. So let's just get going right away with this stuff. If you guys wouldn't mind, Tom, Mike, you know, let me know. T explain to me what environmental due diligence means. So uh, environmental due diligence, it's typically um, done when someone is purchasing a property, they're gonna take a look at that property, make sure they're not buying themselves a nightmare. Um, you know, some contaminated disaster area where they're gonna have a ton of liability to uh, clean that property up and um, be on the hook for all of that money um, for the cleanup. Um, it starts with the phase one and a phase two environmental site assessment. The phase one, you're going to look at the history of the property, see what it was used for, see what it's used for now, um, and try and identify any areas, um, what we would call what's called a recommended environment, rec recognized environmental condition uh, or a rec. Um, you're going to look for those wrecks, which are indications that there may be a problem. Any wrecks that you find would be investigated further in a phase two environmental site assessment or ESA. Yeah, it just kind of serves as like the one of the keystone building blocks for someone who's looking to potentially acquire a property in terms of information that they may need for their project going forward, whether that's going to kind of inform them as to the costs that they may kind of accrue to deal with, you know, What's going on at the property and also to sort of inform them in terms of what they may to do, need to do in addition to whatever their planned project is simply to make the property feasible for occupation whether it's for residential uses commercial uses other things like that yeah cool so you got you guys have already brought up um you know phase one phase two you mind defining those a little bit for our listeners and maybe explaining what the the, the real key differences are you know um Obviously, it starts with a phase one. When would you need a phase two? You know, can you guys elaborate a little bit on that for us? So the phase, you're going to start with your phase one. You're going to do a record, that's going to include a record search, a physical site inspection, and review of environmental databases. Um, that's where you're going to get an inkling of whether or not there are any problems that need to be further investigated by the phase two. The phase two is where you're going to go out and collect some samples and analyze whether or not any of those problems you identified in the phase one are going to be major problems, small problems, not an issue at all. That's 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 where you would figure that out. So what's like the trigger? You know, you go through that record search, the historical review, you go, you take a look at the site, you might see some things, but what says, you know, to the, to the, the, the property purchaser or, or the owner or whoever, you know, it's time to go to a phase two here. You know, there's, there's evidence or what what dictates that? What triggers it? You know, what do you guys typically see that, that, that makes you want to, you know, recommend a phase two? So ideally, there's a couple of items that sort of work in conjunction to get to the point of where you're going to call something a wreck. 
So the first off is going to be the presence of either hazardous substances or petroleum products. So that can be chemicals like solvents, that can be gasoline, diesel, whatever it is. And then on top of that, not only do you need the presence of that, but you also need the basically the identified presence or potential presence of a release of that product to the subsurface. So you're talking about whether it's a tank that maybe has a leak where gasoline has gone into the ground and into the groundwater, possibly industrial activities where they just have been dumping stuff out back into some drains that then have been gone into the ground, whether it's from an on-site stormwater system, an on-site septic system. Once you identify those kind of items and put them together where you have that presence of one of those things, the hazardous substances or the petroleum products, and you have sort of the pathway for a release and the evidence that's indicating there was a release, you kind of use those to then say, okay, this is, looks like something we need to look into. It's something we need to investigate via the sampling in the phase two. So if a site has underground storage tanks, you know, whether it's say heating oil or if it was a gas station or, or whatever, does that automatically mean it's going to go to a phase two because that, you know, potential exists? Or do you go back and look whether tightness tests done, you know, is there, are they double walled tanks? You know, how do you, you know, without putting a hole in the ground say you know you need to do phase two yeah that's going to depend on the on the tanks like you said there could be tightness tests if they have um you know if they're double wall tanks with a leak detection system like you would have at a gas station and they have records showing that that um that that system is maintained and that they're properly logging their inventory and all of that then it might not necessarily be a wreck that's something that we could say yeah there's tanks um, they are obviously storing petroleum in those tanks, but they're doing X, Y, and Z to keep those tanks properly maintained, and the likelihood of them leaking is pretty low. So that's not necessarily going to be a wreck. Okay. Um, at PWGC, you know, we have done numerous phase ones and phase two. I mean, I don't want to say countless, but, you know, I've, I've been with the firm for a long time, and, you know, every year we've done more and more of these things. So it's probably literally hundreds if not more that we've done of these types of projects i think we're well into the thousands I, at this okay point. <laughs> fair enough <laughs> tom's the one who reads most of them yeah anyways. he would know <laughs> but um can you guys just describe the, the the types of clients that we typically do these types of projects for i mean is is there one group more than another or is it just very broad based and you know who are the typical you know property purchasers that that are, are looking to have these done so we have a couple different groups that we do them for. There's um, developers. Obviously, somebody's going to come in and redevelop a property. Um, uh, we have, you know, maybe a business owner or somebody who's going to come in and maybe keep the property as is, um, just purchase the property, maybe a property manager or something like that, a small business who's buying a new building to occupy. Um, tied in with those is banks. We'll do them directly for banks sometimes. And usually if we're doing it for a bank, it's for one of those two, a developer or a property owner. Um, and then we run into, um, we do some for municipalities. We have contracts with Suffolk and Nassau County to do phase ones. Um, and then there's some quasi-governmental agencies like the Suffolk County Land Bank, the Nassau County Land Bank, where the it's not technically the county, but it's kind of passing through the properties, kind of passing through the county properties that are in tax arrears. They want to make sure that it's, you know, see what they're getting into before they try and sell those properties um, to, again, and then it would be to a developer or a property owner of some sort. And ultimately, almost anyone who's purchasing a property that's something that's beyond your standard single family or small residential should probably be doing so, especially if it's anything that has some kind of 
commercial or industrial history that they just don't know a lot about, they should be doing so to at least give themselves kind of the peace of mind to say, okay, I know what this property was, I know what went on, to, went on here, and either I know that there's no evidence of contamination or no history of anything that would be concerning, or they say, okay, there was, but I investigated it and I either addressed it or I sort of, you know, went down the pathway to try to remediate or identify what those problems were. You, you headed me off at my next question, Michael. I was going to ask, is there a certain group or owner that we wouldn't typically do a phase one for? And you said, you know, small residential, like a single family home. You know, some of us have bought homes and I, I certainly didn't go through that process. You'd only get that engineering inspection done, but wasn't looking to do an environmental investigation at, uh, you know, a residential property out in uh, suburbia there on Long Island. Although even with those, I suppose it depends on the con concerns about the history of the property. I know, do know just on one specific situation where, you know, there was an area that got turned into, I believe, some kind of residential development after it had been sort of like a commercial, I don't know if it was a commercial plaza or a commercial development. And I don't know what you think about Tom in that situation, whether or not they might even need it just if there's some history concerns. Usually with a single family residential, we're not doing any kind of due diligence unless it's the, the rare occasion would be a single family residential that has been converted to some kind of commercial use. We, we did one a year or two ago where um, it was a contractor buying. It was a single family home that had been converted to office space and apparently in the past had been used by a landscaper. So they had tanks and all kinds of fertilizers and pesticides and stuff stored on site. So he had some concerns about that and uh, brought us in to do a phase one and a phase two for him. It's, you know, it's just to me, it's uh, rarely do I see an area get rezoned from like commercial to residential, but that, that brings up a good point, you know, and it's this sort of ties well with the, the Brownfields <laughs> from, uh, podcast we did recently where, you know, a developer comes in and he, they may rezone it and it may go into residential, but it's usually not single family. It's going to be more of a multifamily or an apartment type thing or mixed use or something along those lines. So that's, that's, that's interesting as well. But uh, let's, let's dive a little more into like the, the scoping of like a, a phase one, you know, what goes into that? How do you decide what you need to look for? Um, you know, my limited knowledge of these things, even though the firm's done thousands of them, I've never done one, okay? Uh, my background's in the engineering side, so I, I, I've, I've looked at them, I've seen them, I've, I've never prepared one. Uh, I know there are specific standards that need to be followed um, by, you know, I don't want to say regulatory bodies, but um, uh, agencies that may, you know, develop guidelines that should be followed. Can you guys talk about a little bit about, you know, when you get a type of property, is there stuff that you would automatically look for, or is there stuff that you would, you know, you, you only look for if it's on a checklist type of thing, or, or are there standards that dictate this is what you have to look for, and that's it? So, um, regardless of what the site's been used for, there's the the phase one process is governed by an ASTM standard. There's a very specific ASTM standard. ASTM exactly. is, do you know? American Society for Testing and Materials. All right, just for our listeners' sake. Yes. Um, so there's a there's an ASTM standard that very pretty rigidly defines what has to be done. Um, in addition to that ASTM standards, there's the EPA's All Appropriate Inquiry Rule. Um, the All Appropriate Inquiry Rule. That's the AAI. AAI. All right, I'm learning. <laughs> so the AAI rule will provide property owners with protection. They'll, they'll qualify for innocent landowner defense under CERCLA if they do 
their environmental due diligence. The ASTM standard and the AAI rule kind of tie together in that, I guess the easiest way to put it is the ASTM standard is kind of a framework for how you meet the requirements of the AAI rule. So when they update the ASTM standard, EPA actually is involved with that whole process. EPA will, you know, essentially sign off on the ASTM standard to say, yes, it meets our requirements if you follow this. And then, you know, God forbid the worst happens and it turns out your, your property is a Superfund site, you'll be protected from that liability in the future. So when EPA comes in and cleans that up, they're not gonna come after that property owner for, um, you know, to, to try and recoup those costs. Um, so the ASTM standard that defines, you know, exactly what is in the phase one, um, you know, there's a couple different parts that we talked about a little bit. There's a site inspection, there's review of environmental databases, um, review of historical imagery like Sanborn fire insurance maps, aerial photos, um, topographic maps, and what's the other City one? City directories. City directories, thank you. Uh, historical, basically historical phone books. So it sounds like a lot of that stuff has overlaps in case there's a, a gap in one that may be picked up in another. Like, we don't have Sanborn maps for this area. Right. Yeah, which is a problem on Long Island a lot, except for some of the small, um, you know, downtown village type areas that have been there forever. We typically don't have a lot of Sanborn maps for Long Island. In the city, they tend to be a lot more useful. You know, we have them yeah. going back to the 1800s. Back in the horse and buggy days. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you see stuff like that on them. Horse garage, stables. So when, when you do this preliminary site inspection, right, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, we're not going out, we're not taking any samples, we're not probing into the earth, we're not, you know, what do you guys do? I mean, it's non-destructive. What, what are the limits of that site inspection? What are you looking for? What are you capable of doing? What are you supposed to do? So again, you really are looking for, at the end of the day, evidence of items related to those hazardous substances and petroleum products. So you're looking for a whole wide range of things. You know, the most commonplace things you're looking for are going to be tanks, chemical storage, uh, sometimes transformers, other types of possibly PCB containing equipment, such as, you know, hydraulic elevators, things like that. But on top of that, you're also going to be looking for sort of like supplemental evidence, whether that's like stained soils, stressed vegetation. You're also going to look for possible discharge pathways, like things like floor drains, storm drains. And you're going to kind of take all of those things together to make a bigger picture of sort of not only possibly what's going on at that time, but sometimes you can use the items that you see there to help determine what went on in the past. And on top of that, you're also talking to hopefully either a site representative, whether it's the owner, the site manager, maybe the tenant, to also talk about what kind of went on there, maybe what went on there before them, so that you can use all of those pieces of information kind of in conjunction to help determine whether or not you actually think there's something that's going to be a risk at the property. And so like, you know, for guys like you that have done this for a while, you know, you've done a lot of them, what kind of training or experience, you know, how do you guys become, you know, knowledgeable about this stuff? Is it just on-the-job training, or is there, you know, instruction courses, or how do you guys become these uh, you know, site inspection experts? What do we do for our staff to get them up to speed? So, I mean, there is a training course through ASTM that we typically, you know, that people that do a lot of these inspections and also a lot of these reports will take that course. But at the end of the day, that course is only, a, you know, a multi-day sort of classroom course that's showing you examples. In terms of actually becoming you know, sort of very knowledgeable about the inspections, you really do have to do 
I, I think a good amount of site visits. You have to see a lot of different properties because sometimes maybe someone even knows a lot about maybe certain types of commercial properties or multifamily residential properties, but they may not know about a lot about like industrial properties. I know I had to see some um, mine sites for the first time and that took me a little while to sort of get my mind up to speed in terms of what I was looking for, items that might be concerns and things like that. But it's sort of just getting the proper training, whether it's with other people and also taking a ton of notes and a ton of photos so that you can also relay them to other people at the firm and get their opinion if there's something that you maybe you don't know right away what it is. I mean, because, Mike, you brought up a great point. You know, there's a lot of different types of sites out there from, you know, commercial, industrial, uh, municipal, whatever, you know, and each one is going to have a, a whole slew of different um, and unique conditions that may lead to a wreck, Right. Um, so what, ha I mean, how do you make sure you, you, you saw them all? I mean, is there a chance we could not see something when we do an inspection or a record search? You know, what happens if we miss something? Um, as far as the site inspection goes, we have a checklist that we, that our field inspectors will bring out with them to go through. That's a, you know, a list of everything that they should be looking for. So we typically are pretty good at that about not missing stuff. Um, what I tell our um, staff that's doing the inspections is if you see something you're not sure take a picture you know FaceTime me show it to me on FaceTime I'll take a look at it um, that's uh, that I think that's the easiest way you know with the technology we have these days it's not like uh, you know it's not like 20 years ago where you had to take a picture and get the film developed and then come <laughs> back and you know yep. scan the picture it's it's a lot easier these days to if somebody sees something they're not sure about in the field to uh to figure out what it is on the fly speaking of technology have you guys used drones or anything to do any of these site inspections or is it just you know boots on the ground and you're you're walking around you know nosing around lifting manhole covers that sort of thing uh we have i can think of one site that we used the drone on and that was strictly because it was uh, a site we didn't have access to the, our client was looking at a property they wanted to buy. They wanted to do their get started on their due diligence, but hadn't spoken to the person selling the property yet. So we were kind of doing it on the sly. Um, <laughs> so drive-by drone inspection, huh? Basically, yeah. yeah. <laughs> interesting. It was, Very interesting. It was, uh, the site was in the Bronx. There was a park right across the river in Manhattan. Uh, one of our drone guys parked at the park, flew the drone across the river, flew it over the site, got some pictures. You know, and we did that. Eventually, we were able to get, you know, once once the deal moved forward, we were able to get access to the site and do a proper site inspection. And, uh, you know, that site's ongoing now. Wow. Um, um, so, yeah, it's it's you can do it. Um, there's a new ASTM standard coming out next year that's going to have some specific provisions for when you can um, when you can use drones or remote imagery for, for site inspections, when it's appropriate, when it's not. But, you know, we'll have to see what that uh what they come up with that's not finalized yet. Okay. And, and it may be most beneficial, honestly, for sort of large properties. If there's big properties where maybe it's going to take a lot to see the entire thing because it's forested, because it's in a rural area, yeah, because yeah. it's who knows what, then maybe that's going to be something where it can kind of factor in to make our lives easier and also to give you sort of a different vantage point of what the property is like rather than, you know, obviously being at the ground level. I mean, and would it help if like we do thermal imaging and, you know, there's all sorts of other options you can do with a drone or is that not really relevant at, a, at the phase one level? Uh, 
Not, not, I'm not so sure, but I mean, obviously we're always trying to kind of think of new ways to integrate different technology and sort of to update how we do inspections. So it's something we certainly could consider. I can't think of anything specific off the top of my yeah, head. Yeah, no, no, not off the top of my head, okay. but you know. Okay, well, th this is... I think know, that would be kind of a, a one-shot thing if something came up. Hey, you know, that might work on this, but... You know, this has helped me segue more into what, what I'm a little more... I've had more exposure to over my career. I've, I've, I've done some phase twos. I've been part of them, all right? I've been behind a drill rig, punching our <laughs> drill rig or a geoprobe, collecting soil and groundwater samples and endpoint samples after something may have been, you know, dug up and removed. Um what goes into the scoping of a phase two? You know, obviously it's going to come out of the, the phase one, what you guys found, but, um, you know, take me to the next step here. Um, so again, the, the phase twos are also governed by an ASTM standard. There's a phase, uh, phase two ASTM standard. And, um, it's a lot, so it's, it's, it's less defined than the phase one standard, just because it's a much more wide variety of what you may or may not be doing. But the, uh, the gist of that standard is, um, you know, what are the, what are the questions that need to be answered about the site and how are you going to answer them? Um, so you have to look at any of those wrecks that you identified in the phase one, um, you know, be that a tank or a, a vapor intrusion issue or whatever, what's going to be the most appropriate way to evaluate that issue and, uh, basically identify whether or not it's going to be a problem going forward or, you know, if it's something that's, you know, okay, there's a tank, but the tank didn't leak, it's fine. You don't need to worry about it. Or, you know, is it leaking petroleum into the groundwater? And now you have a, you know, a major, major uh, costly issue that you have to deal with. So um, it, that's the key is really, um, you know, how are we going to best evaluate those issues um, for what our client wants to do? The, uh, when we look at these issues, we want to look at what our client is doing with the property going forward before we make a decision of how we're going to scope that out. It's, if, it's, if they're going to use the property as is, you know, maybe we need to be a little bit more restrictive or a little bit more conservative in, our, in how we look at things. If it's a property that they're going to redevelop, maybe we don't need to because if there is a problem, it's something that they can just easily address during construction. So it's... Um, you know, we have to kind of balance that between, you know, what's a problem and how easy it is it to address. So when you start doing the phase two, let's say you find something, right? So I've got some contamination in the soil. Does that lead you to go further? Do you, like, do we have to go and explore with additional uh, sampling points or now do I have to go down to groundwater? Or then do I determine there maybe there's a, a soil or a soil vapor intrusion issue in a building? And, and then what do I do, you know? Uh, that, that, that's going to be a case-by-case -case issue. Again, okay. it's going to depend on the client. Um, some clients, if you find an issue, you know, even a minor issue, that's it. They're, they They're don't done. want anything to do with it. Okay, I'm out. Um, you know, I'm going to move on to the next property, find something that's clean. Other pro other clients who, um, I don't want to say s savvy, that's not the right word, maybe just with a little bit more experience dealing with environmental issues, um, you know, they're not going to be scared off by something that's, that's my, if, you know, if it's something that we can classify as quote-unquote minor, you know they're they're going to be more willing to uh, to take that on. But uh, does our scope often expand once we start poking around, or does it? We're usually like, okay, we're going to go sample here, 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 and that's it. Or do, if we find something, does it 
okay, now we have to do some maybe step outs. You want to see delineate? So does that have, ever happen? We have had cases where that's happened. I mean, I can think of certain situations where maybe there's something like an auto repair garage or something like that, and we put in our initial sort of set of borings or vapor points, and then maybe we do find evidence of some kind of contamination that we want to sort of get a rough idea of the scope of that contamination. You know, depending on amount of time we have depending on sort of how we scoped out our phase two there are times where we can sort of build that in to get a better idea if there's something that we're sort of anticipating but it is a very case-by-case basis and again um the other key thing is sort of like tom was saying is that you're doing ultimately at the end of the day you're doing this phase one and phase two a lot of times for buyers under sort of their due diligence phase where it's there's their x amount of you know days or months when they're trying to determine whether or not they for sure want to buy the property and want to buy it at the property that potentially they agreed upon. So they're ultimately, they're going to use that information to then decide, okay, I want to go forward with this, or maybe no, I want to renegotiate with the seller because we found something that I wasn't anticipating, or no, I want to completely back out because I don't want to deal with this spill or I don't want to deal with whatever it is that we find. Tied into that also is a lot of times they'll have in their contract that the uh, the seller is responsible for a certain amount of remediation, you know, a certain dollar figure. If there's problems up to you know x amount of dollars, it's on the seller. Anything beyond that is on the buyer. So they're going to want us to try and quantify as best as possible with that phase two data. How much, you know, what's what's the uh, what's the price tag on this remediation? So that's uh, you know in that you know in a situation like that, then yes, it might expand if we do find some contaminated soil. Maybe we're going to do some step out borings. Maybe we'll do some additional extra groundwater samples, something along those lines. Yeah. Interesting. All right, guys. Well, that that certainly helps. I, 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 certainly me, and I'm sure our listeners understand the phase one, phase two, the components involved in them, and you know how you evolve from one to the other. Um, Michael, you know. Tell me a little bit about the difference between doing, you know, this type of work in New York City versus Long Island. You know, where do you see some, you know, key differences? Sure. So, I mean, in terms of honestly, any region by region, case by case basis, there are always going to be differences simply because there's different types of environmental issues region by region. There also are different types of sort of environmentally sensitive or environmentally important sites you know, on a case-by-case basis, regardless of what region you're in. But specifically in terms of New York City, one of the key things that we see a lot are e-designation sites, which are essentially sites where um, a zoning designation was placed on a property because of the history of the property, whether it's because the property was a gas station, property may have had tanks, et cetera. And then they apply this to the property, typically through the rezoning process when a neighborhood gets rezoned. And then what that does is whoever is going to basically buy that property or work on that property, they need to comply with this fixed set of rules, right? So that's one thing that we see a lot in New York City. Another thing we also see a lot is going to be historic fill, simply because so many of these properties have been redeveloped at least one time, possibly multiple times. And if you're talking about doing that back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, who knows where the fill came from that they use at this property. They might have backfilled it with something from an industrial site. Sometimes we've seen slag. We've seen all kinds of things. So, again, a lot of times in the city we do try to sort of try to factor in that that could be a concern. Um, and there's other sort of more situationally specific issues. Maybe we're working in a neighborhood that we have sort of pre-existing knowledge about, whether it's somewhere like Williamsburg that had a long, you know, in storage sort of industrial past where maybe we know something about the neighboring property, we know something about a nearby property, 
And so then we can sort of work that also into the phase one to sort of say, hey, you know, maybe this property doesn't look so bad from the sort of the immediate view, but knowing what we know about your neighbors or other people on your street, maybe you want to look into it at least a little bit before you go into the property and buy this property so that at least you know, you know, what your site's actually like in the subsurface. Wow. And what about, you know, like some other, to me, in my mind, right, Long Island versus the city. The city, probably 99% sewered, maybe higher, right? Some places out of Long Island don't have a lot of sewering. Right. Does that factor into any of this too? So it definitely does in terms of Long Island. I do know that Tom is definitely going to know more about in terms of how it factors in. I mean, obviously it creates sort of a discharge pathway, um, but I don't know if Tom wants to sort of. Well, yeah, I mean, you look at, Suffolk County, I think it's something like 80% of Suffolk County, 90% of Suffolk County doesn't have sewers. So any kind of industrial property out there where there's no sewer, they're going to have an on-site sanitary system. You know, even if it's even if it's something uh, relatively that you wouldn't even think of as being an issue, like a restaurant, they're using commercial-grade degreasers and disinfectants in the kitchen. Yeah. All of that's getting washed down the drain into the sanitary system, and. Um, you know, we have the Suffolk County Department of Health Services out here, out in Suffolk County, that regulates these, and they have, you know, a set of standards that if there's contamination over, you know, whatever their levels are in those drains, those have to be, you know, those are considered contaminated and have to be cleaned out. And it's a very, very widespread problem in Suffolk County. Um, basically, basically every property in Suffolk County has one, and it's very easy for them to be contaminated. And we know that well. Uh, we've, we've tied this. This t- ties into some of our other podcasts. We talked about sewers and sanitary systems, and you know we didn't go into um, a whole lot other than sanitary waste going down these drains. But you, you brought up a good point about industrial properties or commercial properties, mm-hmm. maybe cooking. They may have processes. You know, a lot of these places may even have su- their own sewage treatment plants to to deal with this stuff before it discharges. But you you never know, right? Um, so then let's, let's talk about some, some fun stuff here, some examples of potential issues you guys have, you know, in, in your storied careers here at PW Grocer. You know, what have you come across that was memorable when you were doing either a phase one or a phase two um, that you identified that may have really helped a, a, a potential buyer or, or client out in, in this transaction and, the, and that they said either, thank God you told me about this or now I know what to do or, you know, what comes to mind as, as, as something that was real memorable to you guys? Tom, why don't you start us off? Um, so just recently, this was just a couple months ago, we did one for a client out east. Um, it was a wooded parcel. They weren't really concerned about anything at all, all woods. Uh, we went ahead and did the phase one. We found out that, uh, you know, back 30, 40, 50 years ago, whatever, a big chunk of it was a farm that had been allowed to go fallow. Trees had regrown on it. You would never know looking at it that it had, it had been a farm. <laughs> uh, so we found that in the phase one. We did a phase two for them. We found some. They, I mean, it was fortunate that you know there was nothing, um, nothing major. But with the farm, you get a lot of um, pesticides and metals in the soil. Back, oh, sure. You know, Fertilizers, yeah. Right back, um, you know, back 30, 40, 50 years ago, a lot of the pesticides and herbicides and whatever were metals-based compounds. And those metals, when they get in the soil, they they just don't go anywhere. So, um, you know, we did some surface sampling for them. We did find pesticides and metals in the soil. Fortunately, it was all low level enough that it wasn't going to affect them during construction. Um, so they, uh, they lucked out with that. They wound up walking away from the property for unrelated reasons, but um, that, was, uh, that was one that would have been very, very easy to miss without, uh, you know, without doing the phase one. Oh, wow. 
any like tank horror stories that you came across like you weren't expecting you walk out there and i'm not saying it's a fuel tank farm but you know was there anything uh, subsurface that was unbeknownst until you got out there or you did your record search uh, really unexpected um usually the record search is pretty good about turning up tanks between the sandborns and the databases we run into problems with tanks sometimes in suffolk county because the um the tank program, uh, DEC normally regulates underground storage tanks, as you know. Um, the tank program has been delegated to the Department of Health in Suffolk County and Nassau County. Um, so their record keeping is not always as good. So a lot of times it'll say there's tanks, it'll say tanks are removed, and that doesn't really match up with reality. Mm -hmm. So that's usually if we're having a problem with tanks, um, you know, it has something to do with that, where it says they're removed and we go out there and we find a, uh, you know, we find a fill port still there. And, and you know, lo and behold, we do the phase two. Hey, that tank's still there. Um, you know, we just had that problem on a site out in East Hampton where, uh, you know, the, they were 100% sure that there were no tanks. We were doing the, we had to do a phase two anyway for, for other reasons. We had a, a, a ground penetrating radar survey done just, you know, for, again, for unrelated reasons. We were like, let's just look at the, where the tanks were supposed to be just in case. Uh, lo and behold, there's one of the tanks is still there. Uh -huh. You know, they were, <laughs> no, no, no. Those were tanks were all definitely, definitely removed. Okay. All right. Well, we're here. Let's just take a look. Oh, this one's still here. What What about um, like I, personally? I, I've, I've again, I told you guys uh, in the early part of my career, I was back out behind a drill rig or a geoprobe, and you know there were times we were doing phase two. We'd go down, not expecting to find anything, and all of a sudden I, I'll pull up the sand, right, unsaturated sand soil, and it would just stink of gasoline. Have you guys ever had to like call in a spill or anything when you were doing this type of work? Yeah, yeah, all the time. It happens. I, I mean, I've, I've had very, to do it. We're very clear with the clients about that. That you know, if if, if there's petroleum, we have to we have to call in a spill. You, you know, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about that in New York. Um, you know. Yep. We also definitely have sites where we'll know there's a tank there. We'll look at the records, and it might say that the tank was abandoned, but then there's not necessarily a lot of information about how it was abandoned. And we'll go in, and we'll maybe still say to still look take a look at it because it was abandoned, you know, a long time ago do some borings in the vicinity of the tank and either we'll come up with evidence that there was a spill or we'll come up with evidence that maybe the tank was not as well abandoned as maybe it said so sometimes that can be another thing that shows up that's a good point actually we run into that also with tanks that were removed just because they were removed doesn't necessarily mean they were removed properly um you know they can just pull them and that's it they don't bother assessing whether or not there was any contamination so a lot of times even if there's the tanks have been removed when we're doing our due diligence even if the tank has been removed we're going to want to see some kind of documentation showing that a it was removed properly they took some samples to make sure that it was the soils underneath were clean and that you know everything was disposed of properly um, good Michael, you have any memorable projects that really stand out from the phase one or phase two investigation that, you, you know, wow, look what we just found or this was a surprise? Um, well, I definitely think just tying back into the city-specific stuff, I do think a lot of times we get sites that are e-designation sites in the city that maybe the developer is going to buy it and they see that and they call us and they go, you know, why is this here? Like, we don't think anything's wrong with the property. We, there, I mean, there are even e-designation sites that are just vacant properties that maybe have just sat vacant for a long period of time. The developer goes to buy it. They see that. They call us. And what they don't realize is that 
if you're in that e-designation program, especially for specifically hazardous materials, you're talking about not just doing that initial preliminary investigation of the site to figure out what's there. You're talking about doing a sort of a long remedial action process where we're out there every single day, soils being touched, soils being excavated, soils being moved around. And maybe they didn't factor that into their initial pricing for their project. So a lot of times people come to us and are very thankful in terms of just us explaining that process on the front end, either before they're going to buy the property or right away when they're kind of starting to plan out what they're going to do with it. Because if we don't tell them about it and we don't kind of go into depth about how the process works, then that's going to be something that's completely left out of their budget and sort of a line item that's completely forgotten. So that happens a lot in the city. Wow. So... All right. So along the lines of providing examples, you know, what do, what do we do as PWGC that, you know, we go above and beyond to fulfill the client's needs in terms of environmental due diligence? You know, Tom, what's something that we, you know, as a firm that we you generally, you know, are either asked to do or we strive to do to, to, to really exceed expectations? Um, I think the key is, is we work with the client based on what their needs are going to be um, right from the get go. Um, you know, like I said earlier, depending on what they're going to do, if it's just a redevelopment project, if it's a purchase as is, um, if we're working for a bank, they, we all, they're all going to have slightly different requirements. Um, you know, we'll meet with we'll um, we'll meet their their um, turnaround time requirements if they need a you know if they need a phase one in seven days if they let their due diligence period get almost to the end before they get started and they need a phase one in seven days, we'll do a phase one in seven days. Um, you know, we'll, we'll bend over backwards to, to meet their requirements. Um, it's definitely most commonly just comes down to flexibility. I mean, we had one client that came to us fairly recently and basically said, oh, I'm looking to buy an entire property assemblage from another real estate company. It ended up being like 10 properties and their due diligence period was going to be over in about, I think it was two or three weeks. And they basically were like, here you go. Let's see if you can figure <laughs> out, you know, how to get this yeah, done in yeah. time. And luckily, because we have sort of a good mix of different people who can work on it, can spread out the work and we can get things done as soon as possible you know we also have a lot of cases where maybe there's a client we've worked with a lot in long island or new york city and they say hey you know we're gonna buy property somewhere else but we kind of trust you guys so much or we're so used to working with you guys that we'll send you guys over there kind of do the phase one in those area we trust you to sort of do the proper research to learn about that area get more regional specific knowledge and they'll send us out there to do it. I know, like, for me specifically, I had one phase one where I basically went up in the morning up to Boston, yep. did the phase one oh, inspection for about an hour, <laughs> took the train straight back, and basically wrote the report, most of it on the train going there and back. But it was just somebody who was just used to working with us. And they figured this is, you know, it's easier than my guys. find someone <laughs> yeah. there, you know, stuff like that. So that's why I know we've probably done phase ones in at least four or five different states around the area. New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts trying to think if there's a fifth one virginia. rhode island i think we had to do recently i think rhode island yeah. we did just do one in rhode island we've done them in virginia in the past um maryland i mean there's probably other ones that i'm forgetting oh, I'm sure but all up uh you know it's we're not just tri-state area sounds like we just did a podcast on geothermal stuff it's very coincident with the same geographic region we're doing geothermal systems you know sort of the northeast spreading out a little bit and you know, geothermally went out to the Midwest and a little beyond, but uh, very similar. Interesting. Interesting. So, guys, you know, I'm, I'm sold on the importance of the phase one, phase two, and I, and I hope our, our listeners are, right? What happens if you don't do one? You know, what could be the, the result of not doing your due diligence? You know, what, are the, what kind of horror stories have you guys heard or seen? You know, uh, what could go, po what possibly could go wrong if you, if you don't 
undertake your due diligence before you go in and buy, you know, a commercial, industrial, or, or, or you know, mixed-use type of property. So, I mean, I have one specific example that wasn't even necessarily that they didn't do the phase one. It was just simply that sort of an improper phase one was done on the front end where it was someone who called us basically and said, hey, you know, I've had this property for a number of years. I had a phase one done up front, but now I have the EPA reaching out to me and saying that the site used to be a lead smelting facility and telling me that I basically have to do a (laughs) removal assessment and I have to figure out what I'm going to do with this property. Now, meanwhile, this site, when you go out there, they're just using it for parking. It was just something that they bought that they thought was a cheap piece of property that was in their area across the street from their, I think, their workshop. And they just bought it to do parking on it. And now they've come to find out when we did the sampling for them, it's got about eight feet of hazardous lead soils just all, you know, basically from the waste that was from this smelting facility. It's got, you know, slag in the soil. It's got sort of all kinds of discoloration. And the reality was that if maybe there had been a little bit more research done on the front end, probably what would have happened is that at the very least they wouldn't have bought it or they would have at least been better protected and had more knowledge about what they were buying into. I got, you could really be left holding the bag if, if you don't, it sounds like. I mean, that's, that's, that's just astounding and frightening. <laughs> especially because the smelting facility, the company, was gone. So the EPA has almost no one else to target in terms of who's going to do this work for us other than the people who now own the property. Oh, geez. So it, it was a bit of a bit of an issue that then we got brought in to sort of help them try to address. Tom, you have anything you want to share on that topic? Um, the quorum site. So this was a, a client we had. Um, they had a they had a phase one done by someone else. Um, it was a strip mall. I, I forget if they had missed that there was a one of the units in the strip mall had previously been a dry cleaner. It was a thrift store at the time. It had previously been a dry cleaner. Um, I forget if the phase one missed the dry cleaner or if they just ignored it because it wasn't a dry cleaner anymore. But um, we came in, we did a phase two. There was some for some tanks they the the client brought us in there were some tanks that needed to be assessed as part of the phase two we did that phase two we found uh perk in the soil and um fortunately not too much in the groundwater a little bit in the groundwater but it was more a soil issue so uh we were able to um you know we came in we pulled the tank we wound up having to bring dec in and um you know clean up that perk contaminated soil Um, we were fortunate enough that DEC was willing to work with us and you know through some negotiation they didn't have to go they didn't have to go through the hazardous waste program or anything DEC was let us manage it as um under the spills program which is a little bit more friendly a little bit more user friendly yep (laughs) um a little bit cheaper um but that was all that entire problem could have been you know avoided if the if the phase one had been done properly um, from the get-go, um, if they had not missed or ignored the dry cleaner, they would have known about that in advance and, uh, you know, saved themselves a bunch of time and money. Again, wow. <laughs> it can be a little bit scary. It, it, uh, like I said, uh, frightening and astounding when you hear these, you know, what could possibly happen? What could possibly be wrong, right? Um, so, you know, as the industry evolves or or more regulations coming out or, or the standards changing, what are we doing to adapt and refine on, on how we do due diligence to best serve our clients at, at PWGC? Um, so I think I mentioned earlier there's a new ASTM standard coming out next you year. You did, yeah. Um, from what I've heard so far, I've been to a couple um, 
seminar kind of things to uh, about that new standard. From what it sounds like, there's not going to be any kind of dramatic changes. Um, as you know, there will be some stuff about using drones for site inspections, more of an emphasis on um, providing pictures, providing a good photo log, I think was one of the things that they mentioned. Um, and there's probably going to be some stuff about emerging contaminants in there. Um, as we know, um, you know, PFAS is a big issue right now. Especially on Long Island, for sure. Yes. And um, technically, you know, when we say we're doing the phase one, the definition of the REC in the ASTM standard is hazardous substance or petroleum product. And that hazardous substance is defined by EPA. Technically, PFOS isn't on that list yet. So technically, PFOS can't be a REC, but we know it's an issue. Yeah. So that's something we're trying to work with clients to educate them when we do the phase ones. If it's a site that um, you know it could or is likely to have had some PFOS usage in the past, um, it's something we definitely want to bring to their attention because uh, you know New York State is definitely starting to regulate that more now. They have guidance documents on how it has to be investigated and remediated, et cetera. Um, but again, it's technically it doesn't meet the requirement of a wreck. Exactly. And, you know, on top of that, also, obviously, specifically thinking about Long Island, sort of the, the coastal waterways and a lot of the coastal properties have been changing a lot, whether it's from sea level rise, the impact from storms and things like that. So that's another thing that sometimes we'll be cognizant of that we might include a little bit of information about in our phase one. If someone maybe is looking at purchasing a property that's on a wetland or maybe that has a wetland in the part of the property or they're sitting on mm -hmm. the coast, we might kind of point out to them to say like, hey, you know, if you're going to buy this property, depending on what you're planning to do, you might need to get some permitting. You might need to sort of go through the process to possibly better shore up your coast, depending on resiliency. Huh? Exactly. So that's another thing that we sort of try to integrate, especially as it becomes more and more important, sort of, you know, in today's climate and especially in the areas of Long Island, New York City. Wow. I mean, you guys, this has been very informative. I, I have, you know, personally, what I what I don't know about phase ones, phase twos, right? I know the environmental component, like the, the soil vapor, groundwater, you know, soil itself. Do we ever get involved with like lead-based paint, asbestos, mold, uh, moisture issues, or is that completely separate from phase one, phase two type stuff? We we include that in our phase one. Uh, very, kind. Of, I don't want to say surficial, but a, um, you know, we'll assess it, but it's not what we do as part of the phase one is doesn't necessarily meet the requirements of like a real ASTM survey. We'll give you an indication of whether or not we see something that's likely to be asbestos. Um, a asbestos survey is obviously much more thorough than what we're doing is the yeah. inspection we're doing as part of the phase one. But you know, we'll keep our eyes peeled for stuff like that, uh, lead based paint, mold. Um, uh, is that specifically things. in the ASTM standards to, to look for that or to mention it's it? It's actually or? considered a non-scope consideration in the ASTM standard. So, you know, they say you should look for it, but you don't technically you don't have to to still meet the AAI requirements. But it's that's a service we provide. OK, interesting. And, you know, and probably my last question for you guys, you know, it's uh, it's been quite a year with the pandemic, you know, this past year. How have you guys seen that affect, you know, the phase one, phase two um, industry or business line? Has it slowed down? Is it picking back up? What's, you know, obviously there was a lockdown for a while. You know, we people, things were put on hold. Um, did it affect property transactions? Definitely. Um, you know, what, during the height of the pandemic, there was basically nobody was doing any you know, kind of property transactions. So there were 
weren't very many phase ones or phase twos being done. The handful that we did do, some of the, um, uh, the I'm thinking specifically of a couple of the banks that we work for, they had modified site inspection requirements because of the pandemic where it was, you would just do an exterior inspection. They didn't want anybody going inside the buildings, congregating together where they might be exposed to COVID. Um, over the last few months, we have seen uh, the exact opposite of that where these phase ones are coming in almost faster than we can we can turn them out. That, that's a good sign. Uh, yes. It really that, is. Yeah, can't complain about that. No. I'd much rather be busy than not busy. Uh, um, yeah, I'd like to see the economy growing, people at work, you know, people at least thinking about doing stuff here. It's very encouraging. Yeah, it seems like um, interest rates dropped and um, everybody's yeah. refinancing. <laughs> everybody's, you know, jumping on. Uh, you know, I guess there's a lot of good deals in the city to be had right now. Oh, I, 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 yes, I know. I have not been in the city, Michael, since February of 2020. Uh, this podcast is now, we're cutting this in May of 2021. What have you seen in the city with those types of, uh, you know, deals going on? So again, it's a lot of it was sort of the same as what Tom was saying, where the site inspections, you know, you're kind of taking a lot more precautions in terms of what you're doing. You know, you're wearing a mask, you're trying to be socially distant. But on top of that, in terms of the actual markets, you know, things definitely did slow down, certainly at the height of COVID. But now what we started kind of started to see is that some of the, you know, different developers are starting to buy either it's sort of like distressed assets or it's properties where maybe someone was planning on doing a project that then they kind of couldn't go forward with because of COVID. And so now maybe one of our clients or, you know, different developers are looking to purchase those properties, kind of bring them on and complete those projects either as scoped or maybe with slight modifications to sort of meet what they want. But it certainly has picked up quite a bit, I would say, in the city, especially in areas sort of like, you know, Brooklyn, Bronx, places that were recently rezoned. Again, that is so encouraging to hear, really. Uh, guys, I, I do want to thank you for your time today. I mean, if you guys have any closing thoughts or comments that you want to stress, I mean, this has been fully educational for me. As, as I mentioned, most of my career has been in the, in the engineering side of things. But I, I have, um, you know, dabbled with the phase twos and I have read a, a phase one or two in my in my in my past. But uh, to learn, you know, how it evolves, what goes into it, you know, the importance of it. It was it was really good to hear from you guys. Just keep, I guess, uh, bringing us projects and people keep buying stuff and we'll keep doing the phase ones and phase twos. Well, that's I, I can't ask for more than that. I, you know, you guys you did a great job. Uh, keep up the good work again today. Our guests were Tom Melia our senior project manager of 17 years. And we have a project manager, Mike Michael Gall, out of our New York City office with seven years at PWGC. I want to thank our guests. And I just want to remind our listeners, if there's any further interest in this topic or you want to hear this podcast again, you can always find us at pwgrocer.com backslash podcast. Feel free to reach out to us either through that um, venue or any type of our social media outlets. And I am Paul Boyce. Uh, CEO and President of PWGC, and this is the Environmental Echo.